0: Welcome to brand we are delighted to be rejoined by Spencer case, and we're going to be talking about uh, moral realism today. Uh, Spencer, would you like to start with a thought experiment.
1: I would indeed. So I'm going to begin in what will be familiar territory for you both. I want you to take a moment and really to take a moment and pause and, and ask yourself this question. How confident am I that my senses are relaying accurate information about my environment. And I would ask this to the listeners too, wherever you are, if you're listening to this in headphones or driving or whatever the case may be, just look around, take stock of what you're hearing, what you're seeing, you know, what you're feeling, and ask yourself, how confident am I that this is not all an illusion? How confident am I that I'm not going to wake up in a completely different environment and all of this was a dream or some other hallucination or something like that. All right, now I want you to put that on the back burner, stir it every five minutes. We're going to come back to it. And now I want to ask you a different question, but I'm first going to have to motivate this with something that is unpleasant, because I think when we talk about moral intuitions, it's important to have in mind that we're not talking about kids stealing candy bars and things like that. So this is a real thing that happened. In 2019 in Bangladesh, there was a young woman whose name was um, Nusrat, uh, I believe Rahan Rafi, or Jahan Rafi was her name. And she reported to the police that she had been sexually harassed by the headmaster of her school. And she was later, not long after this, lured into the school by associates of this headmaster and asked if she would take back her allegation. And she refused. And then they doused her with kerosene and set her on fire. And she died in the hospital four days later. And this started protests all over Bangladesh. All right, now I want you to think about that. And I'm fairly confident you're going to share both my moral intuition and my considered moral judgment that what I just described to you was evil, uh, seriously, morally wrong. I want you to consider your confidence in that judgment, where you would put that in your web of belief and how it compares to the sensory beliefs about the physical world I asked about a minute ago. So ask yourself, if I were in one skeptical scenario, which would it be? Is it going to be that I'm going to wake up And all of my senses about, you know, what I'm seeing, hearing, et cetera, now, that's misleading me, or are you going to, none of that is is true. Your senses are completely reliable as you believe them to be, but tomorrow you're going to think about this case again, uh, and without hearing any more details that could potentially be morally relevant, decide, actually, nothing bad occurred here. Nothing bad occurred here. Which of those is more likely? Now I'm gonna give you my report of my, how I feel about this. So for me, I would say at least the two are on par. And if anything, I'm somewhat more certain about my moral intuition than am I, about, uh, I am about the sensory stuff. And I bring this for a couple of reasons. One, I want listeners to be aware of the stakes of the debate about whether or not there are moral facts that we can conceivably know about. Um, And then also to sort of get us past this thought that moral intuitions, that sort of moral judgment, that's sort of wishy-washy, but the sensory stuff, that's, that's solid.
0: So it seems that we could have two kinds of debates. The one is to say, there are things that are immoral and there are things that are praiseworthy. Um, And we need to work out what kind of system we should use to evaluate that stuff. So you could have, you know, a virtue ethics account that the right thing to do is that which is virtuous, that one should, you know, have the virtues of wisdom and kindness and honesty. We could have a utilitarian system, which is about, you know, maximizing pleasure, you know, a rights-based system, which is about establishing which rights should be in place and, you know, why you shouldn't violate them. And that's a very different question from whether this whole enterprise is, as you say, mistaken riddled with errors, um, that maybe all moral talk is just, um, you know, akin to some kind of supernatural talk. In other words, when people talk about angels and demons and how many can dance on the heads of pins, you know, the claim will be, well, you know, you could make sense of that language if you buy into the underlying framework of the supernatural. um, But really, it is, you know, uh, not grounded in reality. And so the moral nihilist wants to say, where do these properties of morality emerge from? It seems like there's this is-ought gap. Just because things are a certain way in the world doesn't mean that one ought to do anything about it from a moral perspective or that they have the properties of um, let's say moral or immoral. So the difficult task that the realist has is to try and explain the sort of source of normativity. Where does this stuff come from? How do we get to start using moral language?
1: Right. And I'm going to say, as a lot of realists are going to say, that we can explain certain normative claims in terms of more basic normative claims. But at a certain point, things are going to bottom out. We're going to reach the fundamental you know, theory of value or moral theory or total normative theory. That would be the real holy grail, a complete theory of the normative, you know, for somebody studying metaethics. And then what explains that? I'm of the mind that nothing could explain that. And I'm going to borrow an argument from Chris Heathwood in a paper called, Could Morality Have a Source? And he asks us to imagine morality having a source. And so, for example, one purported source of moral, uh, moral truth is God. So God issues commands and, and makes things right. So Heathwood points out that there's one fact that is a moral fact that God wouldn't be creating in that scenario, and that is the truth of divine command theory. So there would be some even more basic moral fact that would be unexplained. And his point is that if you think about it, any, any account you might give for the origin of morality is going to have, there's going to be something that is unexplained. And so I'm comfortable ta- sort of taking it on the chin and saying, yes, morality is, um, at, it can't be explained in terms of anything further. It's basic, or at least normativity, oughtness generally is basic. Um, I confess though, this is a serious dialectical hangup. A lot of people I put that to have this kind of resistance that you're expressing. They think that can't be right. It sounds like it sounds like we need to put a turtle under the world to me to think that needs some further explanation, but um, you're not alone in feeling this way. A lot of people think morality simply must have a source. And the only other further thing I could really say here is that everyone is going to have the view that something, something goes unexplained, something is basic. So the theist is going to think that uh, God is not going to be explained by anything further. I think the physicalist would say that about the physical universe or the natural universe at some level. And I think the moral realist is going to say, okay, I guess moral reality or normative reality is one of those things that's just uncreated.
2: So one of our previous guests on the show, Sean Stanley, we did an episode with him on moral realism, and he takes the opposite position to yours. Um, so he thinks that there are no moral facts and that um, moral moral claims are false. Um, he does think that it can be useful at times, but that ultimately they're false. So I wonder how Sean would respond to this when you say that there aren't really ultimate explanations for moral facts other than the moral facts themselves. Um, he might say something like this, right? So he might say, well, there is an explanation and that explanation is an evolutionary explanation. If you want to understand why we think it's immoral when we burn someone alive, well, have a look at our brains. Our brains have these these what's called mirror neurons installed and mirror neurons have a look at uh, what happens with other humans. And they imagine what it would feel like if it happened to us. So we look at this person being burned alive. They imagine, well, what would it feel like if I was burned alive? And they say, Oh, my goodness, that would feel terrible. So the mirror neurons are firing and firing and firing when you think about someone being burned alive and see someone being burned alive. And so the mirror neurons say, Oh, no, that's no good. And that response is what Sean would call a moral response. And um, it's it engenders within us this feeling of, oh, my goodness, this is wrong. And he would say, well, that's all there is to something being wrong, is this evolutionary instilled um, response. So that's the explanation. And he says that that explanation is an eliminative, eliminative explanation. In other words, once you understand that, you realize, well, there are no real moral truths. There's just this response, this it, this, this fundamental human instinctive mirror neuron-based response.
1: One thing I would want to say in response to Sean is consider some things that seem like they wouldn't be debunkable in this way. Like consider the badness of pain, right? Um, it seems like if I put my hand on a hot stove and it's burned, I know that what I'm experiencing is bad. Um, and I could imagine somebody coming to me and saying like, actually, it's not bad. You just think it's bad because you're evolutionarily programmed to think that. Um, I would say that wouldn't be a very convincing response, even though it's true. I think it's completely true about the origins of that belief that I developed an aversive reaction to bodily harm for evolutionary reasons, right? But that doesn't mean that I'm wrong in assessing that this is in fact bad. So that's, that's one case that suggests that this kind of evolutionary debunking um, overgeneralizes because if we were to follow his logic, it would seem to debunk that, right? So that's one thing I would want to say. And another thing I would want to say is that a lot of our moral intuitions don't seem very readily explainable in terms of evolution. I mean, you could give, of course, evolution created our faculties that allow us to have moral intuitions, but it's not like... All of our specific moral beliefs are obviously explainable in terms of evolutionary imperatives, right? Like, I don't have an intuition that having a bunch of kids is like the most important thing for everyone to do. I don't have an intuition that um, I should do everything possible to, you know, spread my, my genes, you know, for future generations. Or there are all sorts of intuitions that it would be damn handy evolutionarily for us to have that we don't seem to have. And, uh, you know, there are people who think that the way we treat animals is horribly wrong. I'm one of them and factory farming is evil. And I worried about the suffering that we impose on billions of creatures. But this doesn't seem to have anything to do with me promoting my my genes. It has to do with my recognition that suffering is bad and we should prefer that there be less of it. And I I could go on, but I just think that it's not a very good explanation of a lot of our considered moral views.
0: So I suppose Sean would want to say a few things. The one would be to sort of point out that the way we evolve is arbitrary. Um, So there is no kind of uh, agent, you know, determining the path in which we, you know, develop our intuitions. It's, you know, it has to do with the, uh, you know, the, the random interventions of nature and, you know, how genes interact with it over a long period of time. And so the particular moral intuitions that we've developed, uh, could have been completely different. And on that basis, he wants to say, well, there's a concern that we should take them very seriously. He thinks that some of the intuitions that, you know, people have had over time, um, have shifted quite dramatically. So for example, you know, for most of human history, it was thought that there was nothing immoral about having someone as a slave. Um, and through various uh, interventions, those intu- you know, intuitions have shifted. Um, so you know he wants to say, well, if our intuitions can't be trusted, and if our intuitions can change so radically, one, you could say they're not truth tracking, which, which could be the claim that, in other words, there is some truth out there. In other words, there is some set of norms uh, that our intuitions could aim towards, and they could be revised. The other one is just to say there is no truth at all. Uh, there are just these intuitions. They're subject to flux. Um, and they they change over time. And when we use this moral language, uh, really, we're doing something obfuscatory. So we could just um, be more uh, blunt about what's going on. So when you give the case about putting your hand on the stove and experiencing the pain and saying, that's bad, in other words, you've put an an evaluative statement in, um, or, you know, when you, uh, you know, help an orphan out, and you say, that's good he wants to say, well, we could just express those things as they stand. In other words, it is a true statement that you are experiencing pain, and that you have a desire not to experience that pain. And that's sufficient to explain what's going on there. We don't need to add in the additional valuation of bad. And in the orphan case, we could say that, you know, the person experienced joy or, or relief from their agony. Um, and, you know, you might have other kinds of reasons to perform these actions. In other words, it's in your physical self interest to remove your hand from the stove. Um, It might be a good idea to help others because they might help you in the future. Um, But it's not good in a moral sense. It's just in a prudential sense. And the move would be to say all this moral talk uh, is just sort of you know, over gilding the lily, we could explain these sorts of things through other kinds of other kinds of moves, without robbing ourselves of anything substantive.
1: I see. Yeah, there's quite a lot there. One thing I want to point out is that the argument you made about disagreement, and people have different intuitions, that's a, t- that's an independent argument. I don't really think that that helps the evolutionary argument, one way or the other. Um, so much it's, I just would try to address that independently. So the other thing was, you said at the outset that it was just an enormous coincidence that we have the moral intuitions that we have. And I have to say, I'm, I'm puzzled by that, right? I, I That claim, I'm not sure why we would think that. I, I mean, we, we don't have any experience with any other kinds of species out in the universe other than human beings. It's seems like if we want to be empirical about it he would have to say well you know for all we know there could be there could be other beings that would have wildly different intuitions but i'm not sure that that's true i mean it's fairly hard to imagine that there are going to be some advanced aliens out there that think suffering is good for its own sake and and cooperation is is bad and and it's better to be uh, deceitful than truthful and it just doesn't seem like that's very plausible to me. I mean, may, maybe you could say that's uh, that's just a priori speculation, but I think it's Sean or, or the error theorist that needs to motivate this, this thought that there's just this amazing range of ways that we could have been. And it's an incredible coincidence that we have the tendencies that we have. Um, so that's one thing I would say to that. Now, as far as the, the, the actual disagreement between humans, I think now we're starting to get into something that's a more serious challenge because I'm appealing to my moral intuitions. Um, You're appealing to yours. What do we do when we disagree? Well, somebody's got to be wrong. So whenever there's disagreement, there's uncertainty. So one thing I would want to say is that there are some limits to that uncertainty, I believe. Um, So Donald Brown, an anthropologist, did a a meta-study in in his book called Human Universals, he came up with this list of of over 400 things that are common to all known human cultures. And there were some moral things on that list. It's pretty minimal. So there's an incredible amount of uh, room for disagreement, but it includes things like resistance to abuse of power. It includes things like uh, prohibitions on murder and rape. Now, of course that needs to be qualified because what counts as rape or murder in one culture might vary. You know, Some cultures consider infanticide murder and some don't. So there's some flexibility even there. But nonetheless, it's recognized that having sex with someone, um, exerting power over them, or taking their lives, th- these are not things that are just like any other kind of action. They re- require some kind of explanation or justification. So, so it seems like there is, a, there is a core of agreement here and another thing to say is that it's not as if, you know, two sides disagree and that's it. We, it's it's uh, no way to conceivably figure out who might be right or who might be wrong. Um, I think it's likely that some of the people who participated in murdering that girl in Bangladesh believed that what they were doing was the right thing. And I think we would have some things to say about why it is that they have those beliefs I think we can debunk a lot of faulty moral beliefs by considering, you know, certain cultural origins. You know, does it serve your interest to have those sorts of beliefs? Do you have other metaphysical beliefs that might be interfering with your moral reasoning, you know, a belief in a god who will punish you for acting in a certain way, that sort of thing. So, I think the realist has strategies for dealing with the argument from disagreement. But I nonetheless Consider that the more serious challenge from the anti-realist. Aren't
2: Sean or the anti-realist say something like this? Um, I can explain why you shouldn't um, burn the teacher alive without saying that it's wrong. Or rather, I can reduce down the claim that it's wrong to some other types of claims. So one of those claims would be, well, you shouldn't burn the teacher alive because you wouldn't want someone to do that to you. And if you do it to them, it's more likely to be done to you in future. Um, I haven't used the words right or wrong there. I've just just used claims around consequence. Uh, Another consequential claim would be something like, well, if you burn the teacher alive, people are going to get upset about this for whatever reason that is that they get upset. If they have moral reasons, those are the wrong reasons for them to get upset because morality isn't real, but they will get upset nonetheless. And when they get upset, they're going to protest. And those protests will have negative consequences for us who are, we're burning her alive. And so we shouldn't do that. Um, So in that language, I've never used the words right or wrong. I've just referred to consequences. And Sean might say, well, We just don't want these negative consequences to ensue. And so you shouldn't burn her alive.
1: Now, what I think is interesting about that is now you've got should in the door. Now you're talking about negative consequences. You're assessing consequences as positive or negative, right? And I think that is much more of a concession to the realist than a lot of anti-realists seem to realize. A lot of people seem to have this view that... Other regarding reasons are especially spooky, but self-regarding reasons are just fine. But in fact, if you want to get right down to it, you're not going to find anything in evolution that, or, or psychology that says you ought to take care of yourself either. You'll find desires, you'll find attitudes, but you won't find any fact about things being good or bad for you. I think it is an illusion to think that self-interest is somehow more scientific or more rational than concern about other people. If the, the anti-realist who is my interlocutor here is willing to concede that I actually have a self-interest, I should be concerned about Spencer 10 years in the future from now, whether I'll be suffering and maybe I should change my diet and exercise more and not do things that that are going to cause me more pain later because I ought to be concerned about my future self. So I wanna know, well, what about somebody else? If I ought to be concerned for my future self, why shouldn't I also be concerned about the suffering of somebody else whose suffering I can alleviate or something like that? Um, And so what I'm trying to, to do here is to suggest that Once we get as far as allowing self-interested reasons through the door, and I think the same is true with reasons for belief, it then becomes much easier for the moral realist to make some headway here and say, now, what really is the line between the kind kind of reason you acknowledge and the the, the kind that you say is an illusion? So I wonder if the
0: response is to draw a distinction between non-moral shoulds and moral shoulds. So if I say to you, um, it is raining, and if you don't want to get wet, you should carry an umbrella, you know, that is a non-moral should. Um, And so we just think that given what your preferences are, there are certain actions you could take that would meet those preferences. But there's nothing moral, immoral about the innate preference. So if you um, have a strong desire to watch uh, uh, a a baby, uh, you know, cry its way to death, Well, one way to do that would be to put a bunch of pins in its eye and uh, watch that occur. And then that is what you should do if that's the result that you want. Very non-moral should, or, you know, the readers would describe as an immoral should. If the move is that, which is to say, well, when we use that kind of ought language, it's not moral in nature. Um, And given that there's nothing necessarily moral about the things that we want or the things that we do to others, You know, it's just a matter of working out whether it's efficient to get there. Uh, That seems like the kind of move that the, you know, the anti-realist is going to make.
1: Yeah, I think this is based on a confusion. You could say, you can say, make certain if-then statements that are totally non-moral and totally non-normative, totally non-normative. So you can say, for example, that um, such and such course of action will realize certain goals. Now, that's a completely non-normative statement. But I think when you say, if you, you have that desire, you should do that, it seems to me that you're saying something more. Um, and, if you, and one possible response is, no, I'm not. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I, I identify I should fulfill my desires with that kind of a, a purely descriptive conditional. Then I think the, the moral realist can just make a, a symmetrical move here and say, oh, well, When I'm talking about doing the morally right thing, I'm talking about happiness promoting actions. If you can make that kind of reduction in the prudential case, I can make it in the moral case.
0: So I wonder if those sorts of moves then narrow the kinds of possible normative theories that one could have. So if we think about, you know, Kant's categorical imperative, it's not about, you know, what's good for you or about satisfying your interests, you know, like a utilitarian system. It's meant to be something grander, you know, this idea that, you know, there is a kind of law in the universe that that tells you, um, you know, there are certain things you cannot do and you derive it through this kind of, you know, reason-based process. So you're meant to generate a maxim and an end and you're, you know, seeing whether, you know, if you universalize your maxim, whether you will achieve that end. Um and that seems quite different from what we've been discussing, where you're trying to work out, well, is this good for me in my particularist case? Because you're trying to generate these universal moral laws. Um so it seems to me that you know there is a way to understand utilitarianism and that is compatible with the moral nihilism. In other words, when we talk about maximizing the good, um we don't really mean any kind of moral language we're just talking about this sort of subjective sense of pleasure that people have or the satisfaction of their desires um, and we think that you know you should do those things in some kind of non-moral sense of should and that might be one way to kind of understand utilitarianism and i think maybe that's some way in which kantians understand it they go yeah these guys aren't really coming with a moral theory they're coming with some other kind of theory. Um, and so I, I wonder if maybe some kinds of, let's say, normative positions can get off the ground, but but others
1: can't. So my point in coming up with that kind of reductionism to say, all right, error theorist, if you want to say that practical facts are reducible, why can't we say moral facts are reducible? Because reduction is not elimination. To reduce, to, to reduce the mind to the brain isn't the same as eliminativist materialism which is there is no mind there's just the brain right so if the error theorist wants to say a lot of error theorists trade on this ambiguity i think between reductionism and elimination they say oh well there are norms but they're just reducible and i'm sa- i want to say i'm sorry you don't get to appeal to that because if you reduce the normative the you know, I ought to, whether it's a, I ought to believe something according to, you know, my favorite version of evidentialism or your favorite epistemic theory, or I ought to act in a certain way, given my favorite theory of prudential reasoning or what have you. If you're going to reduce that, you've still got it in your theory. You haven't gotten rid of it. And so that allows the realist to say, okay, well, why can't we be moral reductionists? Now, I I don't think I'm a reductionist, but so you're right, that would narrow the range of available views, but I just wanna point out the dialectical moves that are available here. And if the error theorist thinks that we can be reductionists about some kind of normativity, then it seems we can be reductionists about moral normativity and we're not error theorists and we can even be a certain kind of realist, I think.
2: I just want to um, explore that discussion a bit more. Um, this is going into some metaphysics, um, so, which we haven't covered on the show before, um, but it's an area that I'm very interested in uh, when it comes to the mind-body problem um, and also the social individual problem, how groups are related to individuals. And we have the same problem here, how moral facts are related to um, non-moral facts, uh, perhaps claims about good consequences. So um, when it comes to the mind and the body, uh, something that a lot of uh, people might believe is that, well, because it is the case that when you experience certain certain mental states, those are perfectly correlated with certain brain states, it means that those mental states don't exist. So for example, if I want to uh, make you experience pain, all I have to do is stimulate a certain area of the brain or let's say I want to make you experience a certain hallucination. I can induce that by using magnets to stimulate a certain area of the brain. And some people will believe as a result of that, that actually hallucinations and pain don't exist. All there are is brain states. Um, There aren't actually mental states at all. And the response to that is, well, just because you can reduce mental states to brain states doesn't mean they're aren't mental states those mental states still exist the reduction is conservative it conserves the existence of mental states and here what you're saying is well just because we can reduce perhaps and you're not making the claim that you can make that reduction but you're saying that when someone does make the claim that you can reduce normative claims in other words moral claims to non-moral claims that doesn't mean those moral claims disappear Just because it's true that I could perhaps reduce um, the claim that it is wrong to burn the teacher alive because it will result in negative consequences doesn't mean it's not also wrong to burn that teacher alive.
1: Yes, uh, I want to say something like that. I have to say, though, my views in, in this kind of metaphysics are not wholly worked out. So I'm kind of shooting from the hip here. I do find reductionism to be kind of a strange concept because on one hand, it's an identity. To reduce A to B is to say that um, a, it, the Bs are the As or something. To say that I reduce the mind to the brain is to identify the mind with the brain. And yet it has this sort of connotation that you're like knocking the reduced thing down an ontological peg or something. And so I find that kind of language really puzzling. Some philosophers think of reduction as just, it's two modes of presentation. So to reduce the moral to the non-moral would just mean that we have two modes of presentation. We have a a moral mode of presentation, like a a moral intuition, and then we can scientifically say, okay, these are the brain states that cause suffering and so on and so forth, and it's just that. those would be two modes of presentation, but nothing's getting knocked down a peg ontologically. And I'm totally okay with that. I, I don't know that that's right, but I'm not afraid of that being the right view.
0: So I think the other thing we have to acknowledge is, you know, I've tried to kind of buff up the, the moral nihilist claim uh, to say that, well, maybe we could reduce these things. There might be some cases where we just can't. So we can imagine the situation where someone performs a, um, a an, an act which causes immense suffering to someone else. And there will be no consequences for them. Uh, they will never be punished, no one will ever find out about it. But nonetheless, our ordinary moral intuitions tell us that that is something that you sh- ought not to do, not because of what it will envisage on you, but because the other person matters, because the other person has some kind of worth. So, you know, if you go around... Um, let's say you're someone like a Joseph Fritzl, but better at keeping the hiding. So you, uh, you know, you forcibly impregnate someone, you keep them in your dungeon, you put them through years of torture. um, And you, you know, your your safe house is good enough that no one's ever going to find out. We think that you ought not to do that, not because the authorities might catch up with you, but because that person in your dungeon matters, that they have some kind of moral significance. And when we're in a situation of non-reducibility, when we can't explain the ought in terms of these other kinds of facts, well, then the moral language starts to become very, very useful. Um, And there we might think that the nihilist has robbed themselves of something uh, vital. Uh, Mark, I think
2: that's a very good, that's very good, Mark. Uh, That's one of your better
0: points. (laughs) And they're all good, but
2: that's great.
0: (laughs) What I'm saying to you, Jason, is you need to release the kids from your dungeon, okay?
2: (laughs) You know, you've convinced
1: me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the kind of reduction that I would think would be worth exploring wouldn't be reduce morality to facts about one's own self-interest, but I would say reducing it to facts that include other people's interests as well. And so... That's one thing I would say. And I would also say going with reductionism isn't the only or maybe even the best way to reduce uh, or to reply to the nihilist or the error theorist here. You could also, I think, say this. You could also say that, let's go back to the case about what the moral error theorist thinks about self interest. I'm assuming we're, I'm talking to. A moral error theorist who does believe that there are reasons of self-interest. And, you know, I think it's very interesting that that it's extremely hard to find a moral error theorist who won't just get rid of normativity altogether and not try to retain some kind of normative language um, in theory or at least even to explain why we need some kind of conser- some efforts to conserve moral language in practice. I find that very amusing. You don't see many atheists bending over backwards to accommodate theistic sort of speech and to justify going to church. And as before, I find it extremely puzzling that, uh, that this is the case before I was listening to this uh, podcast, I was listening to another one on um, with Don Loeb, who is, who is an error theorist. And he's like, he was explaining how he doesn't think there are any moral facts, but then he says something like, well, I, I, I have moral attitudes just like you do. And I'm like, well, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, not if you're consistent. Um, and he says, he says, well, you know, I have to, uh, I do have to say that Hitler wasn't bad and that was a cost of my theory, but I do have moral attitudes and I just don't know what that would even be. And so what, what I'm getting at here is there are a couple of different places you can resist the air One of them is to say, um, look, if you cannot eliminate moral talk and normative language from your own theory, at least at the level of self-interest and epistemic normativity, there's some kind of ought in there somewhere. And two, you've got moral attitudes conserved somewhere and you're making justifications for keeping moral sounding language. You might ask yourself, well, have you really, are you really able to give up that kind of uh, belief? And I'm curious what you think about this. I've been exploring this idea recently, which is that I think you can maybe argue that certain views are unreasonable for people to adopt in a way that's sort of independent of evidential claims about them. So if I know that adopting a certain theory just entails that I could have no no reason to adopt the theory, it seems to me that's a reason for me not to do it. Um, if I know that adopting a certain point of view is going to be I, put me in a state of permanent cognitive dissonance with all of my actions and the way I think and self-conceive, and there's no way out of this, it seems to me that's a reason not to accept it. But this is a this is controversial because I'm appealing to reasonableness and not evidentiary considerations.
2: So I have, I have some counter examples to those principles. Uh, so here's one. And. Um... Suppose that it really were the case that the physical world doesn't exist. Um, just suppose for a moment that that is true. Um, and that you're a brain in a vat. Um, it seems like on your principle, uh, it would render the, the belief of in skepticism uh, to be an unreasonable belief to hold um, because it would just make your life so difficult um, that it just wouldn't make sense to live it. Um, and yet it would be the case that skepticism is true and that you're a brain in a vat.
1: I don't think this is a counterexample. Um, I'm going to bite the bullet here. I think you would be unreasonable to believe skepticism. And there's a sense in which you ought not, if it's really true that the evidence against skepticism is the same as what we have, I think you ought not believe it. Now you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. And so there's one desideratum that we really, really care about as philosophers, it's truth, and you wouldn't have it. But you'd have reasonableness. I think that's something.
0: So I suppose what's interesting in in Jason's case is whether you have knowledge about the fact that you're in a brain in a vat. So if, for example, you're, you know, you've, you've exited the matrix, and you've confronted reality, and then you knowingly go back because it's so much nicer to taste the steak, even if it's it's fake steak. Um, it then seems like it's unreasonable in some way to kind of act as if all of this stuff is real when you know it not to be the case. So, in a state where you say, "Look, I don't know, um, but it's reasonable for me to act as if all that we see around us is true," that that seems like a reasonable thing. But to I don't think you could know something to be false and then reasonably act as if it were true. Now, of course, to kind of bring it back to the moral case, it's not like we have the knowledge that there is no morality or that morality is an illusion. You might think that it is reasonable to act as if um, there are rights and wrongs. And as you point out, that seems to be the case with the moral skeptics, that they still cloak things in moral language and they act in you know. Uh, in accordance with these moral rules, um, even though they don't think that they're true or even though they have some skeptical hypothesis.
1: This is really interesting. It's making me think that, um, well, for one thing, I want to say to the skeptic, the skeptic d- doesn't think we can have moral knowledge. Maybe he doesn't even think we can have moral justified belief. But I wonder if the skeptic can say, okay, well, if there is moral truth, we can be, we can be confident that it would be, some things would be moral and other things would be immoral, even if, even if we, we, we can't know that, right? Like, so it seems like if, you, if you're in a kind of position like that where you think we can't have moral knowledge, but maybe we could guess that certain things would be wrong if anything is, don't you have a reason? Don't you just straight up have a reason to avoid those things that would most likely be wrong? Um, so that's one thing. That's one thing I am wondering. So you might think you, you might think, for example, we have no idea whether or not there's a moral reality, but if there is a moral reality, genocide is wrong. And so here you are in the actual world, having no idea whether or not there's a moral fact, but if there is genocide is wrong. So it seems like you have a moral, you have a moral reason not to take the
2: risk. So you might approach it kind of like a Pascal's wager. Um, so you know the the person who, by the way, I don't think Pascal's wager is successful. We cover this in our previous episode with Liz Jackson. You're in a certain situation where you know whether something would be judged to be wrong if there was a moral truth. So either moral truths exist or they don't, and you know that if moral truths did exist, that if you perform this action, it would be considered to be wrong. Um, perhaps severely wrong. So let's say your action is genocide. Should I, should I, should I perform this action? Should I, should I commit genocide? But you don't know whether morality exists or not. So the question is, should you perform the action? So you consider the world where morality does exist in that, in that world, it's definitely not something you should do. You shouldn't, you shouldn't commit, just commit genocide. Then you consider the world where morality doesn't exist. And there, there's no perhaps strong reasons for or against committing genocide. And, and, you, and you don't know which is which world you're in. You don't know whether you're in the world where, where morality does exist or doesn't, doesn't exist. And because there's not strong reasons not to perform the genocide in the world where there isn't morality, but there are strong reasons not to perform genocide in the world where there is morality, you shouldn't commit genocide.
1: I, one thing is though, when you're talking about these different worlds, these, these epistemic possibilities because if we're talking about modality, like morality is either, it either is there in all of the worlds or in none of them because it's supposed to be necessary, the basic moral truths. So yeah, I, I've been wondering about this. I, Mike Humer and Christian Kuhn's I believe have got papers along these lines developing this to some degree. And one thing, I think there are certain things that are unattractive about the theological Pascal's wager that aren't present here. Like what puts me off of Pascal's wager is this thought that um, I'm doing something dishonest and dirty for selfish reward, right? I mean, I find that kind of an off-putting feature of Pascal's wager. I mean, true, I would eventually develop virtues in all of this. But the, the thing that gets me started is this, is this um, believe in God so that I can get this big reward for myself. That seems kind of selfish and not maybe the right motive for religious belief. Whereas in the moral Pascal's wager case, you really are motivated by fear of doing the wrong thing. And it's not like there would be anything wrong with, with uh, considerations of honesty, I think, that would uh, arise here.
0: Yeah, I'm inclined to think that there's something quite appealing with Jason's view. And it seems to be in practice, that is what people are doing. In other words, the skeptics say, well, I, I don't know if there really is a moral system. And it might be that all this talk of morality is just nonsense speak. But I'm going to act as if it's true, because the costs of being wrong are so severe. And um, to give you a, a different parallel case. Um, one of our guests is David Benatar. And uh, he, he takes the view that it is wrong to bring new people into the world because it is bad for them. This strong strong antinatalism. And in a discussion with him once I said, well, would you be in favor of forcibly sterilizing everyone on earth, given how severe the consequences are of childbirth in other words if we're going to have you know thousands of future generations of people that are going to be brought into a world of absolute suffering you know the calculation is quite quite obvious we you know interfere with people's um, ability to produce new children if you're correct they're doing something wrong by having them um, and we could prevent all this future suffering so isn't this an implication of your view that we ought to do this and his answer was to say I think we ought not to do it because I might be wrong. In other words, if I'm wrong, there is a severe infringement of people's bodily integrity. um, And that is a good upfront reason for not doing it, because we at least know that there, you know, there would be that upfront cost. And I think that's the sort of interesting thing with people who make radical claims, often is that the right approach might be to sort of be a bit humble about it to say, well, because I might be wrong, We shouldn't rush to genocide. We shouldn't, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with genocide, but I could be wrong, in which case something very awful will have occurred.
1: Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And um, it's hard to know how far to take this kind of, you know, probabilistic hedging of our moral beliefs, right? That would be one worry. Um, And I suppose you could have the skeptic or the error theorist say, well, I'm just as much a skeptic about these sort of meta decision moral principles as the first order stuff. I'm just as much a skeptic that I ought to avoid moral risk as with any of the the other moral claims we're talking about. I don't know if there are any error theorists who are taking something like the, um, the Kantian agnosticism, live as if realism were true, even though you can't know whether or not realism is true or the Pascal's wager kind of approach. I'd be interested to know if there were
0: Spencer, this has really been a fantastic discussion. Um, I think we've managed to do some real, you know, philosophy in action. It's been fun to sort of draw on different kinds of areas of philosophy to try and see how much progress we can make in in the field. Um, you know, I think all of us and most of our viewers are going to have some sense of sympathy for our moral realism because it really does accord with our ordinary intuitions. And I think the important work of philosophy is being able to try and adopt a contrary position so that you can sharpen your sword and get closer to the truth. And there've been many times this conversation where you've tried to be as charitable as possible to your opponents so that you can understand their positions and think what their best responses would be. And I think, you know, that's really one of the true virtues um, of, of doing philosophy.